Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So what now in Canadian politics? Aaron O'Toole is gone as conservative leader. Uh, make no mistake, Justin Trudeau was seen by some, perhaps many, within the Liberal Party as a liability, given all the baggage, personal and uh, as Prime Minister, that he carries with him, and which the next Conservative leader may not be too shy to confront Trudeau with. So Trudeau may well be in increasing difficulty with the Liberal Party, particularly with the apparent availability of former Bank of Canada and Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. He's moved to Ottawa and taken on a very public Liberal Party mantle, and Jagmeet Singh, how secure is Mr. Singh within the NDP? They lost seats in last year's federal election under Mr. Singh's leadership. Time for Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift, president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. How are you, Catherine? I'm great, Roy. Thank Seems you. Seems like I just talked to great you yesterday. Great to be here with my fellow beauties. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on the new gig. Thank you. Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun Islander. Hello, Roy, and congratulations, Catherine, on the new job. Thanks, Linda. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, former seatmate to Justin Trudeau in that very same Parliament. Hi, Michelle. Can we put Michelle up, please? Guys, wakey, wakey. Thank you. Hi, Michelle. Are you there, Michelle? All right, somebody fix this, and please, and let's get Michelle up. All right, um, Catherine, let me start with you. We talked yesterday about the uh, the moves within the Conservative Party of Canada and uh, um, Mr. O'Toole's departure and the uh, arrival of Pierre Polyer, so, um announcing his candidacy for Prime Minister of Canada uh, when the campaign actually hasn't begun within the party. Where do we start? Where do we start with these issues? We have the, uh, you know, we have the, uh, the the truckers in 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 Ottawa and their supporters. We just heard from Mike Drolet. It doesn't look like that's going to break up anytime soon. We have the political issues. We also have economic issues. Where do we start? Well, I don't know, Roy. How long have we got? You know, thirty seconds. Uh, <laughs> it, well, I I saw Pierre Poilievre, and I've known Pierre for quite a long time now. When he when the Harper government was in, and and so on, and and uh, I've always liked him. Uh, I think he does come across as a pit bull because he is. But you also don't see another side of Pierre. He's actually got a really good sense of humor. Uh, and and I think a great connection with average people, actually. And I think maybe that's the linkage here, because the trucker protest, which has gone way beyond truckers, let's not you know fool ourselves here. Uh, it, that is an average people protest. 
by and large. And yeah, there's a few fruitcakes. There's a few fruit crakes in every crowd, as we know. But by and large, it's average Canadians who are fed up for all kinds of reasons uh, and and saying so. And boy, it takes a lot to get Canadians to protest. You know, we're, we're not a big protesting people. So uh, what gets me in all this, and I, I frankly think Pierre's um, gambit of saying I'm running for prime minister is a smart one. I'm sure some conservatives are going to treat it as greatly presumptuous, which it is. But I think it's a, a clever move, frankly, because he has got his eye on the prize. But the thing that gets me in all this is we have a national crisis right now. I don't think we can question. We, we, we have a national crisis right now, right across Canada. These protests are just a, a symptom of the greater disease. And by the way, where's Trudeau? Do we have a prime minister right now? He is AWOL. And to me, that is the antithesis of leadership. All right, let me just move on here because we do have, what happened to Michelle? We have Michelle, sure, her name appeared on the board and then she disappeared. I understand it's not working. I can see that. Thank you. Uh, Linda, what's your take on uh, on what you're seeing and what you're hearing and what you're feeling? What, what do you need to say about what's happening in this country right now? Oh, you know, the great divide, Roy. We talked about it before in your show, I think the last time we were on, and it's pretty incredible. But first of all, I want to say, you and I, Roy, agree that the Conservatives need Catherine Swift to be their leader. But, <laughs> oh, no. but she but she went and got a new job, Roy. So that's... Yeah, that's been, that's been taken care of. And I got to say, I work for an American firm that's out of Minnesota. And I got to say, Ray, I, eyebrows are raised. What is going on in Canada? Like, we never protest. I mean, Catherine's right. It, I mean, Catherine, you and I led a few protests, the tax crusade, et cetera, and we did get people out, but it's tough. And so I think that you're right. There is a national crisis in this country and there is a growing great divide. And I think a lot of people feel left out. And well, you hit a, the nail on divide. the head, Roy. We've had it's, a divide for quite some time. We've had a east-west yep. divide. We've had a linguistic yep. divide. We've had regional divides that have been going on. Maybe it's all boiling to the surface because of 22 months of COVID. But how do we get how do we get out of this situation? What creates the dynamic to change the reality and start some really significant and meaningful dialogue in Canada? Or have we? I don't want to say this, but have we? passed by that opportunity do we have michelle yes or no tell me please we do okay Let's put her on the air for me please would you do that guys <laughs> i really appreciate it okay Roy? where did you go in california you california people <laughs> you just have too much fun you lost me <laughs> you have too much fun losing me, but that's okay okay well we anyway, have you now so so you get... so let me ask you so yes you you sat with mr trudeau in parliament you know him well um, and you you know what's going on in Canada. You're spending your winter in California, so you have the American perspective. They got truckers that are apparently going to be starting in California, heading for Washington D.C. in their big convoy. We talked with an American trucker yesterday about that. Michelle, how do you assess what's happening, and what do you see happening in the People's Building in Ottawa in Parliament? What's going on? What's your perspective here, Roy? It is a bubble. They they've lived. Too long in a bubble, and we're getting a lot. Uh, as Catherine wrote in the Toronto Sun, we are getting such pushback, and there's so much anger that it's incredible. And they just aren't listening. The old, the old things that they did in the past are no longer working, and they keep trying the same things 
over and over, and it's ridiculous. You know what you just made me think of, and I'm going to run this past all three of you. Just, just, sec, just sec, uh, Catherine. Let me just say this, because Michelle just made me think of something that Daryl Bricker said earlier today on the show, and that is, it may get to the point in Parliament where the three parties come to a conclusion and an agreement that the only way to address what's happening now is to have an early election. Hmm. Well, Trudeau would love that because the Conservative Party is, is effect, well, has an interim leader, but is effectively leader, leaderless, you know, in a permanent way. But I, th- I think what Canadians are quite fed up with, and, and justifiably so, is being talked down to, being treated uh, in a patronizing manner by a certain, and you say you mentioned divisiveness, both Linda and, and Roy, and, and this is one of the most divisive governments I've ever seen in my <laughs> relatively long life. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's divide and conquer, but you don't conquer. You end up losing everybody. And I think that's what's happening here. And Canadians are saying, that's, no, you're not acting in my right. best interest, frankly. So how do and we move forward then? Us. How do we move forward out of this? Uh, Linda, what do you say? How do we move forward? With, with a, we need a leader who embraces all Canadians. And I know it's tough. I mean, there's the immigration issue. There's, um, well, you just mentioned it. Small businesses going out of businesses. These are the backbone of the economy. So if we need a leader, if we're challenging the leader we have now, do we need an election? Do do the the conservatives have to put their leadership issue or their drive into into, uh, high gear, get it done? Because what what Daryl said was the parties would agree together that an election is necessary. But then can we afford another election? I mean, come on. Well, we have can we afford record, not to have an election? No. <laughs> it's just crazy where we are. And uh, as I say, I think we need a visionary that embraces everybody and not dividing, as uh, Catherine says. Here's a question. Let me start with Michelle with, uh, with you on this. Do the trucker convoys, do you think, and the protests in Canadian cities represent the prevailing national view? Or is it, as some people are emailing me, a manifestation of a noisy but ultimately fairly small representation of the national population. What do you think, Michelle? I think it is uh, the smaller representation, Roy. I I honestly do. Um, Because, at least in Canada, it is. Because as far as the Canadians are concerned, they're all on side with the, the vaccine mandates to a certain degree and to masking and that type of thing. I think the, the, biggest, the biggest enemy we have are, are the politicians that are fueling this by not leading the country. They're leading their base. They're living, they're doing everything in anticipation of the next election. Yeah. Oh, it always is that way, isn't it? Um, this time they're facing a different reality. Is Canada running... Linda, is Canada running headlong toward an even greater West-East and otherwise regional and linguistic divide uh, or, or, or not? What do you say to that one? Well, you know what? I would say yes, definitely, except I will say the truckers are out in Alberta. They're everywhere across this country. Um, I hate to see that. But again, the great divide. And I think, you know, Michelle, you're right. I think it's it's a smaller group that is represented here. But what I found really interesting watching all of this was a lot of people were coming out who were for vaccinations, were for it, but they feel frustrated and being left behind. And so they wanted to come out and voice it. So 
again, I want to go to the basics of democracy. We need to get back to government for the people and by the people and not elitists talking down to us. And then, of course, you know the People's Party is out there and they're stoking it just like the Republicans south of the border. You know, we're on a world stage here. We got Russia. We got China. We got bigger fish to fry here. And we're looking weak right no, now. So now it's a fish fry. Yeah. yeah. So now it's a fish, <laughs> so now it's a fish fry, is it? Okay, let's get at this fish fry. Okay, okay, Ms. Swift, let me ask you the same question I asked Michelle. Because I'm seeing this in a lot of emails. I'm also seeing a lot of bought and paid for media. Give me a break. Do the trucker convoys and protests... You're sending me an email saying bought and paid for. Give me a break. Do the tr trucker convoys and protests in Canadian cities represent the prevailing national view? Or is it, I'm quoting an email that I received from a listener, a manifestation of a noisy but ultimately fairly small representation of the national Canadian population view? Catherine. I think it's somewhere in the middle, to be honest, Roy. Um, I think it's not an insignificant fringe, as Trudeau tried to classify it, which was stupid and divisive. Why, why did he say that? Frankly, uh, John Tory has taken a much more sensible tone in Toronto than Trudeau has, and also that, that Watson has as the mayor of Ottawa, and he's ended up with a better result. And granted, they did have Ottawa problems to learn from, so we have to factor that in. But I think to here, what is the issue? If the issue is, the issue isn't vaccination, because it seems the majority of people protesting uh, and even sympathizing with the protest are vaccinated. So, and when, when I see, okay, the truckers themselves, yes, they're not a majority for sure. But when I saw tons of people on overpasses and stuff, you know, coming coming out of, uh, of their homes on freezing cold days to cheer them on, this is not a fringe group here. And I think the truckers and others that are, you know, supporting them are, are, are representing a legitimate viewpoint of quite a few Canadians. And it's not vax. It's overbearing government, government that doesn't have the best interests of citizens in mind. It has their own sinecures and their own, you know, their own elitist comforts in mind. And that's what they're pushing back against. And again, I'll say Canadians aren't protesters. <laughs> to get people Apparently out on minus 30 days, boy, <laughs> that takes a lot to get a Canadian out. And it's yeah. happening. So I okay. think here, and, and frankly, and I, I mentioned this on your show yesterday too, Roy, why after two years of truckers and initially we didn't even have vaccines because the trudeau government was so incompetent at, e at even procuring right. them right yeah. from the get-go but for two years we have had truckers going over the border going across canada bringing yeah. us the food and other stuff that we need to live and all of a sudden at this juncture and 90 percent of truckers are yeah and it's you know and that. catherine that's you know that's been talked about a lot and we had uh yeah, of the chamber of commerce on this program saying it's a terrible time for yeah. the uh, for the band-aid to come into into effect michelle we look to government to be pragmatic hopefully in managing the affairs of the people fight among yourselves during an election campaign and then be pragmatic about the management of the people and the issues of the people polling has showed us time and again that there's a great mistrust of politicians in this country a great mistrust of parliament doing the right thing for us and that i think is what many canadians are pushing back against now so we are inside that building for four years as a member of parliament, what's the air like in there? Is it different to the air outside the building? Is, is, is the water different? Is there a sense that we're entitled and they're just the folks and they'll do what we tell them? Is that the mood that's in that place? Well, it's, I know it's worse than when I was there, but there was certainly, 
without question, and I've talked to you about this before, this sense of entitlement beyond anything I've seen. And I really wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't been sitting there. Uh, and certainly there is no cooperation anymore. There is no for the good of the people. It's for the good of the party. It's, you know, it's all about the party. It's not about the people. And you were the poster MP. And tell that story again in the 30 seconds we have left. You posted your expenses online, and you were instructed by the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada and the party whip to stop doing that. They were going to give you a beautiful office with its own bathroom if you just stopped telling people what you were spending public money on. And you said no, so they shut you down. My good friend Daryl Bricker, at Daryl Bricker on Twitter, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, tweeted this this morning. A few thoughts on how public opinion trends to evolve when it comes to events like those taking place in Ottawa. While there's much elite conversation in media, both traditional and social, about why and who as this drags on for the public, it's increasingly turning to what? Daryl Bricker joins us. Daryl, can you pick up on that? And, and your thoughts are there in, in subsequent tweets, but walk us through what what is what? Well, the what is the uh, control of public order. I mean, ultimately, government exists for one main thing, and or one main task, and that is to maintain the peace. And increasingly, what this is becoming about is the ability of the government to be able to exercise uh, its will in order to maintain the public peace. And where this all comes back to is ultimately the government itself. I mean, you can talk about who the people are who are doing this. You can talk about their motives. You can even talk about what the leader of the opposition says or doesn't say, or leaders of other parties or other groups. But ultimately, it's the government that's responsible for this, and they will be the people who people, that the public evaluate in terms of their performance during this crisis. And as you write, the focus shifts to the competence of the politicians who they, the people, believe are in charge. Uh, so, so what happens now? Where do you think public opinion is going, and uh, and and what's in store? Because obviously, the uh, temperature has gone up. Uh, somebody said on this program yesterday, when you can hear a kettle whistling, some water's boiling in the background. Yeah, well, the problem that that exists right now is nobody's really sure what this about is about anymore. I mean, it started off as a as a dispute over. Um, uh, some trucking, uh, you know, vaccine mandates that existed, but it, it seems to be becoming much more about that and, and more, about much more than that. And in this particular public opinion environment in which there's so much anxiety out there about so many things, and what we've seen is that fatigue that's related to COVID really turned into a sense of frustration, compounded, compounded by a sense of unease about where the country is going. This is starting to attract more than just a you know, a simple change to a regulation that a government has put in place. It's becoming a bit more than that, which makes it very, very complicated to deal with. Yeah, another tweet that you have today at Daryl Bricker. Federal government is coming off narrow election win and governs with a minority. Public was already divided on them prior to the protests kicking off. Until there's a peaceful, efficient way to get the streets back to normal, this will eat away at their precarious public support. That would be Mr. Trudeau and his liberal government. There's one question that I'm really curious about here, and that is how do people eventually respond and react if there's a federal government that is really struggling and there's nobody really there to, to, to pick up the pieces, 
So because because we have a minority government and that makes it more precarious to begin with for for any federal party that's that's in that's that's in charge. How will people respond to if the federal government, the current one, continues to be in trouble? Well, the pressure is going to mount for them to do something. And where you'll start seeing it is, uh, you know, the public opinion polls will start rolling in and you'll start to see what people outside of that bubble actually think about what's happening within that bubble. And if, uh, you know, people are saying the government's doing a great job and, you know, uh, able to control the situation and able to put forward its agenda and it's going to get the thing resolved, it actually could work for the government. But it doesn't seem to be going in that direction right now. And, and I remember probably the, the apex of all of these types of disputes that's taken place in Canadian, Canadian politics over the space of the last 40 years was the Oka crisis. And it's one in which it started off as being about the cause and what was actually happening uh, in Oka uh, with, the, uh, with the Indigenous bands and, uh, and, and with the government. But over time, it really started to grind away at the federal government and Brian Mulroney because they just couldn't seem to get the situation under control. Right. And the longer that it goes on, the less credible the government lo- looks and the lower its, uh, its approval rating for being able to manage crises like this well. You could very well see that here if this drags on. Yeah, about much more, you write, in another tweet, than what's happening in a few square blocks of downtown Ottawa. Where it goes is very difficult to predict. What is it that the people of this country, and we're often divided regionally, uh, provincially, linguistically we're divided, what does the people uh, want in Canada? If we can erase those divisions for a minute, what do we want? Well, on this one, I think it's more of an orderly return to something that looks normal in a sense that the federal government has a plan about how to, first of all, get, you know, deal with this. And by the way, it's more than a plan. It actually has to demonstrate that it's, that it's uh, working with the other two levels of government to get this resolved and they can get the National Capital District back on track. So that's the first thing. And then after that, it's dealing with all the other issues that go along with this, which are, um, for example, returning to some form of normal when it comes to uh, things like vaccine mandates and masks and all that kind of thing. People want their lives back. But after that, it's all of the economic uncertainty, Roy, that's out there. And that's what you're seeing is that this thing is turning into a snowball. And it's it's rolling downhill and it's accumulating more people over time as it, as it rolls downhill. And uh, the anxiety that exists out there is starting to coalesce around flashpoints like the one that we're seeing in Ottawa right now. So it would be wrong to just look at it as a technical you know, we just have to resolve this regulatory type of situation, although that would help. It's about, it's the, the, the anxiety that this is an expression of is much deeper and much bigger than that. Okay, and the other big story in this country over the past week has been the departure of Aaron O'Toole as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And you're right, the departure of the leader of the opposition could be the first act in what turns into an unpredictable cascade of events with long-term consequences. Share that with us, please. What are you thinking? Well, you know, the, this government is in a minority situation. And the assumption is is that they're, you know, they're incredibly strong and that they'll be able to govern with any combination of, you know, they only need one other party uh, to, to uh, agree with them on any piece of legislation. So the assumption was a couple of years to go. Uh, nobody was assuming that the leader of the opposition would get knocked off. Um, now there's going to be a new leader of the Conservative Party, which you know obviously puts more attention on them for a period of time. But also, uh, as long as these things go on, as this anxiety continues to build, the government's approval levels will decline and the likelihood that people um, will vote for them starts to become jeopardized. And if they start to look wounded in a fundamental way, there's potential that the three parties could come together and say, 
we want to have an election. And so we could end up having an election sooner than anybody thought. Um, so uh, it's, it's a very volatile environment right now, Roy. Uh, the reason I said it is unpredictable is because it definitely is unpredictable, but we should open our minds up to the possibilities of various outcomes that, quite frankly, you know, the, the, uh, the media that's in that Ottawa bubble right now really isn't talking about. Uh, they're too into what's going on around them as they go out and try and do stand-ups and that kind of thing. And not looking at how the rest of the country is looking at it. And it may be very different from the way that people in the bubble are looking at it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Inflation, which is massive. We have StatsCan saying it's 4.8% officially. Um, uh, we had the uh, former chief analyst for StatsCan, uh, Philip Cross on the air last weekend saying it's more like 6%, maybe higher than that. And uh, the Senate had before them the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, and they gave him a hard time because Mr. Macklin and the bank have done a miserable job of predicting what inflation was going to be. So we'll get at that with our next guest. We'll also get at the issue of interest rate climbs and what it's going to mean to all of us. And our next guest is our great friend, Professor Eric Cam. Macroeconomics at Ryerson University tells it like it is, tells it like he sees it, and we appreciate that. Professor, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Roy. How are you? I'm well. Let me just, first of all, get your, from the seat of your pants view of the convoys and the large turnout in Toronto supporting the truckers and the protest, uh, which is nominally anti-vaccine mandate, but really more diverse than that. What, what's your view of it? I actually have two things I'd like to say about it, because you were right. You entered the show by saying, let's get away from politics and talk about economics. But of course, you know, as well as I do, there's no such thing as disentangling them. So number one, what do I say about the truckers revolt? I would say that it was inevitable. It was inevitable. It was going to happen. The revolt was going to happen from somewhere at some time by some group who said we have got to start looking at things in a bigger macroeconomic picture. And I'm not sure the truckers got together and said, listen, our economy is on the slide and we're in trouble. What are we going to do? But they absolutely got together and banded together and said, food prices are going through the roof. We can't do our jobs. We do our jobs independently, alone, sitting in the cab of a truck. And the government is far more willing to concern itself with whether we've had zero, one, two or three needles in our arm than getting the free flow of goods to and from countries. And so, number one, I think that it was just an inevitable, inevitable uprising. And number two, I think our prime minister, as much as I've been hard on him, I have to give him one piece of credit. I think he's the luckiest politician alive because I think he fiddles as Rome burns. I think he can now say, I have to worry about these truckers. I have to worry about protests. I have to worry about bottlenecks in Ottawa and Toronto. I don't have time to worry about the fact that our economy is in the toilet. And I think that in a way he is living a blessed life that he can say, don't look over here, look over here. But the reality is, is he's solving neither here nor there. So what's the difference, Roy? Yeah, well, Somebody once said to me, you can't say neither here nor there because it has to be somewhere. Anyhow, <laughs> let's get at this issue of uh, of our inflation. We have the uh, 
Governor of the Bank of Canada, Mr. Macklin, uh, quizzed hard by the Senate on his failed inflation projections. What does that mean to all of us when the Bank of Canada blows it on inflation projections? What's the what's the inevitable outcome for most of us in this country? The inevitable outcome is twofold. Number one, you get to watch prices rise higher than you ever thought they would get on many of the goods and services that we use. And number two, you get to watch the purchasing power of your hard earned or saved dollars go through the floor. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now. I mean, you're seeing the Bank of Canada, in a sense, at work. They are a group that is based on expectations. They take all of the information they have, and they make a forecast and a projection, and then the real numbers come in, and you either overshoot or you undershoot. And right now in Canada in 2022, we have grossly overshot expectations of inflation. And that's why you can't afford to fill up your car or shop at a grocery store. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, the, the silly and tiring line, but I use it all the time. Inflation to me is when I'm going to the gas station and the, and the grocery store on the same day and I can't afford to fill up it either. So I was at the grocery store the other day and I bought about seven items. And we're not talking about luxury items here, just getting some fundamentals. I got a bottle of wine as well. And it was over, I think it was 116 bucks. And I was easily able to go through the express line. And do you talk to people who go grocery shopping or go out shopping? They'll tell you the same thing. This is what's happening. It's hurting everybody. And now we're going to be looking at an interest rate climb, which we need. But you put it, please, into context for us. What does the Bank of Canada have to do? What makes sense as far as an interest rate hike is concerned, say, in the next three to four weeks? Well, sadly, what the Bank of Canada is going to do in an economic sense, Roy, is acknowledge that it screwed up. It's going to acknowledge that it made an expectation and blew right by it. And right now it's not doing its job. It came out and publicly said, don't worry, Canada. We're going to keep inflation at approximately a 2% range. And now we're at approximately a 6 to 7% range. And so it only has really one bullet left in its, uh, in its casing in its gun. And that's to raise interest rates and try to reduce spending. Now, if I may defend the bank for a second, the bank probably didn't have to at the time, a couple of years ago, it had no idea it was going to be faced with the co complete gross mismanagement of the economy of the federal government. And they were going to print money like it was water. And then it was going to get affected by supply chain disasters. So I do give Tiff a, a, a break because he couldn't have known he was going to have to deal with the gang who can't shoot straight across the street. But the reality is they've acknowledged that we have done nothing to control prices, whether it's food prices, gas prices energy prices, all of prices are through the roof right now. And so they've got the only thing they can do left is they're going to try to reduce spending and reduce inflation by raising interest rates. Now, interesting also is there's such a thing as what's called a fooling equilibrium. And I use fool not lightly because, you know, in their last negotiation, they did not raise interest rates because I think their plan was to say, let's have Canada believe we're going to uh, raise interest rates. Everybody will act as if we're going to increase interest rates and that will slow down the inflationary problem. And it didn't. And so now they go, oh, no. The fooling thing didn't work. Now we really have to raise interest rates. And what's going to happen is really anybody's guess. They'll go 25 to 50 basis points the next time they meet. And it really is all they have left in their gun, Roy. And I can't even sit here and tell you what's going to happen because so far nothing has gone according to script. Yeah, nothing's gone according to script. And uh, they should have taken a lesson, at least uh, had an indicator that it was going to be unpredictable given who's in office 
and who, you know, the Prime Minister saying he has no real interest in monetary policy, and the fact that we've had 22 months of uh, uncertainty because of the pandemic. But, you know, when we talk about interest rates and we talk about inflation, and we've talked about the fact that 46% of Canadians told MNP LTD in, uh, in Canada just a few weeks ago that they don't believe they will be able to necessarily meet their financial obligations in 2022. Next thing that comes to mind is housing, the price of houses, the cost of houses. Did I overspend when I bought my house? Can I afford to buy uh, a house now with interest rates going up? How How is the what's coming our way most likely going to affect Canadians who are asking themselves questions about buying or retaining their homes? I would be very, very nervous if my mortgage was coming due this year, Roy, because you're right. There are way too many Canadians marginalized by the pandemic. There are way too many Canadians that are, as we say, one paycheck with an insolvency. Well, let me tell you, the Bank of Canada now is out of options. Interest rates are going up. And if you're going to renegotiate your mortgage this year, my only advice would be to do it quickly. And maybe you're going to get dinged by 25 basis points, but maybe not 50 or 75. And now we're going to see what happens. You know, we always said three, four years ago, almost jokingly, when rates were at historic lows, boy, if these rates go up, some people are going to walk away from their houses. But it's not so funny when it's the reality for thousands of people. So I really hope that people have their eye on the ball. And if they're going to renegotiate mortgages in 2022, call your bank, call your lender, do it quickly and and don't get stuck on the wrong side of the distribution realizing now we can't afford the house we bought two years ago there are many situations that are ongoing that deserve attention you know like the 350 or 450,000 surgeries that haven't been done because of the uh health system and our healthcare system yeah it's got problems but it had problems before covid even before covid there were five million canadians who had no family doctor so if you start with a population of 37 million and 5 million don't have a family doctor, don't tell me we have a healthcare system that's functioning optimally because it isn't. There's a lot of work to be done on that. And there are people who are struggling and suffering because they can't get the medical attention they want. Let's think about them too. And then there are the issues of families and kids. Families and kids. What do kids want? Come with their mom and dad. And what happens in this country is when families, when parents split, and that happens, children are in the middle. And you look for an equitable situation that comes out of the family courts. And we've had a family court judge on this program tell us, that's the last place you want to be. But that's where it ends up. And COVID has played a significant role in muddying the waters even further. COVID and vaccination status of parents, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, and the impact this is having on divorce courts and assigning of child custody. A vaccinated parent arguing in court, the unvaccinated partner, spouse, should have partnering time suspended. One case before the B.C. Supreme Court this past week addressed that, and we're going to speak with the father in that case right now, along with his legal counsel, Scott Taylor of the Taylor Law Group in Langley, British Columbia. Uh, Scott's been on this program many times. Scott, thank you for coming on. Good to talk to you. How are you? As always, Roy, and I think you put it succinctly when you said COVID has muddied the waters, and it's muddied the waters in family law as well. Yeah. Let me say hello to Chris briefly, and then we'll talk to you, Scott, about the situation as it exists generically, and then we'll get into Chris's situation as much as we can. How are you, Chris? 
Uh, good afternoon, Roy. I'm as well as can be uh, under the current circumstances, that's for sure. Although yeah. I'm uh, very thankful to yourself and the others who are uh, pushing these sorts of issues to the forefront of the Canadian public so that we can look at them uh, you know, through clear eyes and clear minds and hopefully uh, come together on some sort of a positive consensus as opposed to what we see right now. Yeah, because it affects so many people, parents, kids, grandparents. It affects so many. Scott, just outline the situation, please, for us. What are we talking about? And uh, what is Chris? Because Chris retained you as his legal counsel or advisor. Please share with us what we're talking about here today. Well, well, well thank, thank you, Roy, as always. Uh, I was retained by uh, by Chris to assist him to have his parenting time restored. And his parenting time with his children had been removed, had been temporarily suspended as a result of, uh, of Chris's uh, decision not to be fully vaccinated. So the court decided to temporarily suspend his parenting time with his, his children um, until the issue could be uh, examined in more detail at an application, and that application is, is something that I assisted him with. He's a what you call a self-represented litigant, which means that uh, that he does a lot of the work himself, and I was involved in the preparation of the materials that he was going to rely upon in court to hopefully restore his parenting time, and that was my that was my role in in assisting him to hopefully get his children back okay chris what can you tell us about your situation what you're facing what the court decided and what what you said to the court and how the court replied yeah certainly right um i i can talk about the current situation and that is that effectively my parenting time which was uh uh monday to thursday with the kids has been suspended indefinitely the court has seen uh, it, in their mind that I am essentially a risk to these children, despite having successfully parented them now for two years with uh, this amount of time and having no issues with regards to COVID. But uh, as a result, as I understand it, of the decisions that are coming out of Ontario, um, it, it, there were some parallels drawn, and, and it is the court's view that any Canadian parent uh, regardless of which province they reside in, uh, such as uh, what we see coming out of New Brunswick, uh, which hit the papers here in Victoria yesterday, any uh, Canadian parent that's unvaccinated poses uh, an immediate health risk to their child, such that your time will be uh, effectively removed. Um, th that's the reality of the situation. Uh, there's something called judicial notice, which is where a judge can state um, that it's beyond any reasonable doubt that, uh, in their opinion, uh, a fact is a fact. And in this particular case, uh, this judge saw it fit to tell me that because of my vaccination status, I posed uh, a serious enough health risk to my children all of a sudden that I could no longer parent them. Um, there was a small concession uh, added to this uh, based on the Ontario decision, and that is that I can parent my children for two hours at a time outdoors um, twice a week. So my parenting time has gone from shared parenting essentially down to uh, four hours until such a time as I prove myself double vaccinated. Okay, I'm looking at a line here. We have to take a break in a second. We'll come back. But I'm looking at a line here from the court. The client must show proof 
that would be you, uh, of double vaccination in order to have his parenting time restored. Nothing else. That's it, right? That's all. That's, that's, that's what they said. That, that, that is it in a nutshell. As soon as I am doubly vaccinated, everything returns back to normal. There's no, um, no other issue here whatsoever. Um, I mean, in, in this particular case, uh, as everybody can imagine, it's an extremely acrimonious situation where, you know, you have two parties that have very different views on, on a whole bunch of different subjects. But uh, in the court's eyes, there's one simple uh, thing to be discussed here, and that is whether or not I'm vaccinated. And that court decision in British Columbia is predicated on a decision made in the province of Ontario. That's correct, yeah. So the judicial notice was taken from the Ontario decision that was released. I, I don't know the dates, perhaps Scott can chime in on that, but effectively uh, a completely different situation where an unvaccinated child uh, was seen to uh, be at risk. Um, I, I would also add to that that unfortunately in that situation, uh, the father, uh, you know, was exhibiting some questionable behavior with regards to uttering threats against the mother, this type of thing, which may or may not have played a part. I, I'm not really privy to it other than reading the decisions. And, you know, uh, somehow those situations are deemed to be uh, exactly the same. And, you know, in the brief synopsis I read in the Victoria Times columnist, uh, the, the decision out of New Brunswick this week as well, or last week, um has exactly the same premise to it in the sense that an unvaccinated parent cannot uh, parent safely until such a time as they're fully vaccinated. How old are your children, if I may ask? Certainly. Um, uh, Not this week, but uh, the week prior was my son's fifth birthday. Uh, While I was unable to see him due to that uh, suspension, and uh, my older boy is now, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, geez, my mind is blanking here, but uh, um, 2014, so eight. Scott, as I understand it, the charter does not uh, does not permit uh, governments to tell you what to do with your body, right? Well, well, right. You know, we have vaccine mandates in place uh, across Canada. Should you decide to get on a plane, use a train? So the question that that we're being asked now is: Do parents need? Is there a vaccine mandate? For parents to look after their own children, if there was, I, I you know, that's news to me. But well, one if, thing if there I, is, because there are unvaccinated parents in this well, country, there'd be a lot of kids moving out of the house. Well, that's right. And and one thing I wanted to clarify as well: these other cases that have happened about vaccination status. Just to be clear, those Ontario cases, for example, that are being that have been relied upon, basically those cases involve children that were either too young to be vaccinated and the most recent case in new brunswick was a child who was immunocompromised so there was a variety of collateral factors which don't apply in this particular case in british columbia that's the part that i find most concerned in other words, it's simply vaccination status it has nothing to do with the the, the, the children themselves it just has to do with uh, with the parent and that's that's the part that is concerning and should be concerning for parents, unvaccinated parents across Canada. And as you said, it, 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 the irony is, not the irony, but the situation is there are going to be many people who say, just get vaccinated. What's the problem? What's the issue? 
just get vaccinated and get to see your kids. Well, let me ask Chris about that. Chris, uh, what about it? I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times when people say to you, well, just get vaccinated and you, you can see your kid. Yeah, uh, well, I, I can respect that everybody deserves their own opinion. And, uh, you know, certainly my uh, family uh, is is uh, medical in background. I have medical training myself. Um, it, it is my view that uh, vaccines are, are a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I would hate to think at some point that we discover, um, you know, that vaccine technology should be uh, similar to what we're seeing in this COVID case uh, as it pertains to the other types of vaccinations used such as polio and the rest of it we'd, we'd be in real dire straits in this world if, if uh, um, all of a sudden we we look at uh, what we're accepting here as being a vaccine uh, for everything else that we're vaccinated against i'm vaccinated my kids are vaccinated against things that where it works uh, in this particular uh, situation i i have my own view and that is i would like to wait until there is something on the market like uh, for instance the three examples coming out of the uh, vaccine research facilities in in uh, quebec uh, those alternatives to what's currently in use pose, uh, you know, the opportunity for a more successful uh, vaccine to be used, if you're going to call it a vaccine. And, you know, uh, it, it should be my right to be able to wait for something that I'm comfortable with, uh, where there's enough of a track record to ascertain whether or not the safety data that's being professed is accurate. I mean, you know, there, there's a multitude of different ways of looking at this. And the beauty of living in Canada is up until recently, you had the ability to, uh, you know, look at things from your perspective and, and be honored for that. This particular situation, however, is different in that it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what my reasons are. It doesn't matter at all uh, about anything other than whether or not I've subjected myself to a coercive uh, situation and taken the shot. And frankly, well, one of that's, the things that's that... really not okay. Sorry, uh, one of the things that occurs that is that vaccination could be weaponized by um, a spouse who doesn't want the other spouse or partner to see the kids. But what do you, I mean, what do you tell the children? How do you explain Well, this it? is the, the, the reality. Um, you know, today will be the first day I'm seeing the kids in, in uh, over two weeks. Um, you know, I, I was submitted uh, to dealing with a, an extremely short notice application as I was at work uh, uh, in a dump truck at noon on Thursday uh, that I would be in court the next morning at 9.30 a.m. to essentially respond to this claim that my children's lives are in danger so that uh, they could be removed before my next parenting time. I mean, I, I'm sort of still in shock having to deal with this, but, uh, you know, you touched on a very good point, and that is the weaponization of COVID vaccines as it pertains to parenting, specifically with unvaccinated parents. And, you know, unfortunately, when a lot of parents separate, there is acrimony. And there is the desire to poke your eye, you know, uh, of the spouse that you don't like for whatever their, those reasons are. In my case, you know, I, I don't feel it's my place to go into why this is. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of that that's at play. And, and it certainly is an opportunity for that to be used by other parents in Canada. If they dislike the other parent, they can choose to make the application to the courts claiming that their children are unsafe. And based on this precedent, regardless of whether they are safe or not, if they're unvaccinated, boom, no more kids. That's really scary. Yeah. What, what are your next, uh, what are your uh, your legal options now? What choices do you have? Well, um, I can, uh, you know, appeal uh, this decision. It, it's an extremely time-consuming process from what I understand. It may take over a year for me to uh, go through that appeal process. 
uh, obviously, you know, um, waiting a year to see my kids is, is uh, uh, not really a good place to be. It's not healthy for them. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's an impossible situation, really, any which Chris, way you look at it. Chris, Scott, I have a minute left here. I have to ask this question. If the mandates, uh, if the, the requirements to be vaccinated are lifted by governments and public health authorities, would this court order still stand? Well, you know, Roy, you've nailed it, because that's the question I don't have an answer to. Like, if, if, if the mandates are completely removed, can Chris return to court and say, the circumstances have changed, I need to change this, and there is no answer. That is the part that is extremely concerning, Roy. What happens in the future should those mandates change? Because remember, Roy, yeah. there is no mandate right now regarding a parent caring for their own children. Chris, what I uh, what I am seeing a lot of is uh, really the question about, well, why wouldn't you just get vaccinated and to see your kids? Um, but we're talking about that. What? So, so what options do you have going forward? And again, if 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 the uh, if the fundamental uh, right to parent your child is predicated on being vaccinated, I would argue that there are probably many homes in this country where parents are not vaccinated or one parent isn't vaccinated, but they're both living in the home with their kids. So what, what, what's, the, what's the conclusion to be drawn? Because one parent isn't vaccinated, the kids have to leave the home? That seems to be the extension of that particular situation, does it not? I, I think, Roy, that um, we have similar understandings of the dysfunction here. Um, you know, I was in discussion with the uh, parental coordinator with regards to what happens to me while I'm parenting my kids uh, on this two-hour window when one of them needs to go number two in the bathroom. Effectively, uh, I can have severe repercussions as a result of going into the bathroom with this child as I'm you know, clearly putting his life in danger being an unvaccinated parent, and yet he still needs help in the washroom. This is so unbelievably ludicrous when you you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, You know, there's there's, there's this responsibility for me to uh, police the people around my children uh, as to whether or not they are vaccinated or not. I, I don't feel it's anybody's right to be uh, asking that question. I mean, if I make the choice to go to a restaurant, um, you know, there's mandates in place, which I have to follow. But I mean, what business do I have asking anybody uh, what their vaccination status is? And, you know, I mean, it, it just extends so far here uh, that it boggles the mind. Well, again, the, the concern as well, or the question as well as this, if those, when those mandates, when those restrictions when those regulations disappear does the court decision take precedence over the removal of the restrictions in other words the restrictions are gone but you're still not allowed to see your kids because the court said not until you're vaccinated so that's the question scott uh, we were talking about that before the break scott taylor of taylor law group in langley british columbia Roy, the frustrating part and the concerning part for me, and again, the weaponizing is definitely, I think, a potential risk, is the fact that when does this change? When does the situation end? When is this living nightmare going to be over for for Chris and, and his children? And there's, there is no expiry date. There is no until such and such a date. 
there's nothing like that in this particular uh, decision. So the frustrating part for, for Chris is knowing not only are these conditions that have been imposed on him, but when will they ever be, if ever, uh, when will he be released? from those conditions yeah. and i you yeah. know I'm a, i've been doing this family law for you know 40 years i don't have an answer for chris and can imagine the frustration for chris and and you raised an earlier point roy if you take this decision to its logical conclusion if parents are together like they're not separated they're not divorced and either one or both of those parents decides to be unvaccinated well, doesn't that mean all of their children are at risk? I would say so. I mean, if, if the court decision, if the course. if the Ontario and the New Brunswick court decision is being applied in BC, then it's probably going to be applied rest, across the rest of the country. And so, what do you, what happens? Does it does a does a does an aunt, an uncle, uh, someone uh, who's a member of the family and disapproves of one of the parents not being vaccinated, go to court and the court says, "Yep, yeah, no, kids can't stay in the home because one of the parents isn't vaccinated." I know people will say. The easy solution is to be vaccinated and, and get it over with. Now, Chris, we have about two minutes. So do you have any understanding? Uh, has the court given you any feeling, any sense uh, that uh, if the mandates are removed, if the restrictions are removed, if the re- vaccine requirements are removed, that the judgment will similarly be removed? No, I, I, I would say that the answer to that is absolutely not. Uh, the the reasons, or or I guess it's the order that came out of this uh, uh, judgment, are are very clear. There is only one option uh, for this to go away, other than through uh, appealing it. There, there there really is no end date. There is no stipulations of anything other than um, you know it is what it is until you're doubly vaccinated. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more. Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 